All right. Good morning. Oh, thank you. All the little little children can be dismissed to uh, children's church. Hey, I appreciate that, Jared. All the little ones can be dismissed to uh, to children's church. We'll temporarily lose a good bit of our audience, but they'll be back. Every week I got to retell the same joke somehow. This is the most impressive part of the sermon. Um, Good morning. My name is Joey Sedlock. I am a member here at Sulphur Community Church, and today uh, I get the privilege of continuing our study through the book of Ruth. Uh, Next week, uh, Blake will wrap this up for us, and and, and we'll get to see the full picture, how it all ends. But today I get to cover, uh, you know, a really interesting part of the story, and uh, we'll be in chapter 4. We'll cover verses 1 through 12 today. So that's Ruth, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And uh, that reads, uh, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took then, uh, he took ten members, or men of the Uh, the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. When he said to the redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relatives on Limelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this is the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, the name of the dead, uh, so that the name of the dead may not be cut out from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this, this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give to you by this young woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and, and we are thankful. Lord, we're thankful for all that you've shown us through the book of Ruth so far, and we're thankful for the truths that you have yet to show us, Lord. We are, we are thankful for your, your sovereignty, your attention, Lord, to man whom, whom you have no real, uh, no real reason to be mindful of us to begin with. 
Lord, I, I pray that today um, our hearts be settled, our hearts be ready, be open for your wisdom, for your word, for, the, for your challenges, Lord, for your grace. And Lord, I pray that you just speak through me as clearly as, as, as I am able to let you, Lord. I, I, get, I, I, get, I get out of the way as much as I know how and let you speak, let you shine, and let your glory go forth. Lord, we, we, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Okay. So, every now and then, we get an opportunity to answer questions that we don't normally get asked. And, and, and it's, it's an interesting opportunity, but there's some, there's some, in, uh, there's some uh, instances where, where these opportunities come up on a regular basis for us. Right? One of them is like a job interview. Some of the strangest questions I've ever been asked have been in a job interview. As a matter of fact, I had a buddy up in Fort Worth. He was applying for a job at a gym. And in the job interview, the guy asked him, why do they make manhole covers round? And I, and I told him, I would, have, I would have had to ask for clarification. Like, I'm trying to work at a gym. I don't know what I've wandered into, but this is, not, this is not what I had at all. And so it sent us on this research project to figure out why in the world they make man covers round. And it turns out it's so that no matter, no matter which way you turn them, they can't fall in the hole. Ah, we didn't know that. Job interviews, right? The second that, that you may have is when you're sitting in a big group of people where no one knows anyone, you have to stand up. Say your name, and then you have to explain your favorite type of cloud to everyone, right? Which is cumulus, because it's the most cloud-like of all, right? I got some agreement. I got more amens from that than, than any other sermon I've ever preached here so far. Um, you know, and so, so we, we have these times where we get asked these interesting questions. Maybe you're taking a, a Facebook quiz to figure out what flavor popsicle you are. You know, just, I don't have an answer for that one, uh, but two out of three ain't bad. But one, one of my personal favorites is when someone asks, what's your favorite person of history? Or, or what's your favorite quote? I remember I, I was applying for a church internship, and the question was on there, what's, what's your favorite quote and why? And it's kind of like this like, little personality check that they put in there. But throughout our, our entire reading of the book of Ruth, one of my favorite quotes of all time has continually come up. And, and it was from a sermon, and it's really interesting because I don't remember anything else about the sermon. I just remember this, this quote. So I don't remember what they were preaching on or anything, but I wrote down this quote. And the quote was, God restores us by restoring us. God restores us by restoring us. And, and the truth of that quote just landed on me heavy that day. And in that moment, there were some things that had happened to me in my past that just kind of made sense. I felt more comfortable with myself. And the reason was, at that moment, I realized that God had come into my life. He knew everything bad about me. 
And, and, and his unconditional love, right, that's a beautiful thing, but his contra-conditional love to me was a better story, and that is God not only loves me regardless of what I'd done, but God loves me despite what I had done. He didn't come in and delete my past and say, none of that matters anymore, and you're going to go into this, like, witness protection type situation where nothing about your past you can ever talk about again because your future is of a new person. But, but he came into my life and he said, I can restore you, which means I'm going to take all your flaws and I'm going to be aware of them. I'm going to love you anyway, and I'm going to retell your story. So that stories of abuse and neglect and addiction, they become stories of grace, strength, protection. God restores us by restoring us. And I can't help but see that in our story of Ruth, who, as we know, she was a Moabite. She worshiped foreign gods. She wasn't from Israel at all. She had no interest in Yahweh, may not have ever even heard of Yahweh. We don't know. She marries this Hebrew dude who ends up dying, unfortunately. She makes this commitment to Naomi, who's in a, in a very dark place. And we have Naomi's storyline as well. But she makes this commitment to Yahweh, this commitment to Naomi. She finds herself in a foreign land, doing the work of a destitute woman. She finds favor. She finds grace. And all the time, we see how the Lord is just retelling the story of Ruth. She's consistently referred to as Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the widow. We're going to see both of those in our text today because her past hasn't been deleted. It hasn't been forgotten, but her life is being retold. And we've, we've had some, some interesting twists and turns, right? And at the end of chapter 2, we see that uh, Ruth and Naomi have secured food at least until the end of harvest. Well, the end of harvest has come. And as Blake preached uh, last week, uh, Naomi tells Ruth that I want, I want permanent rest for you. Not just till the end of harvest, but, but until the end of your days, right? And so she, she comes up with this, with this kind of kooky plan, which at the end of the day, I think we have to say is at very best a risky plan at worst a really really bad plan but she comes with she comes up with and she says hey go in there uncover this man's feet after he's he's merry and and sleeping in the dead of night and lay down there and do whatever he says now Ruth deviates from that plan a little bit he wakes up and basically she proposes marriage right they're, they're just banking on Boaz being a good guy. And luckily, Boaz is a good guy. She doesn't, she doesn't get assaulted. She doesn't get rejected. She gets accepted with open arms. But we, we see this, this love story between Bruce, which I said on purpose this time. Uh, we see this love story kind of start taking some hits, right? Because it, it's like your favorite show. It's got some setbacks where he says, hey, I would absolutely love to. And we all cheer because we, we're, we're really pulling for Bruce, right? And, and we all cheer. And he says, but there's someone closer than me. And we're like, no, we don't want that to be true. And he says, a matter of fact, if I'm going to go talk to him, if he's willing to redeem you, then let him. And we're like, no, brother, you can't do that. You got to challenge him to like some BMX race or, or, or something like that. Whatever the theme of the movie is, you know, you got to challenge to whatever he's good at and show that you're better him and, and, and win the girl. And, and he says, if, if you, if, if he's willing to redeem you, then, then let him. And, and she agrees to that. 
She's initiated this, this marriage uh, proposal and she's agreed to say, okay, if he's willing to redeem me, then I will. And that's what we're dealing with today in our text. Because Booth, Booth, I don't know who Booth is. Um, Boaz is, uh, is going to go take care of that business that he promised. Because Naomi assured Ruth that he would take care of it the next day. And so here we are. We have uh, Boaz in chapter 1, uh, or in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken uh, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And so Boaz goes to the city gate. This is where official business is handled. It may act uh, like a boardroom for a business meeting. It may act like a courtroom uh, to settle disputes. Uh, but this is where all the important people met. And they usually met there early in the day as everyone left town to go work their fields. Then whoever you needed to talk to was sure to come by. And so he goes and he he does exactly what he said he was going to do. He's going to meet there. And he's going to wait. And behold, the Redeemer comes by. And and what's really funny is uh, Boaz just calls him friend. Almost like he doesn't know this guy's names. And he's like, hey, guy. Come on over here. Sit down. It's interesting because the author probably purposely took out his name. He is to remain anonymous for some reasons that we'll see here in a minute. But he just says, turn aside, friend. And so he came and he sat down. And and Boaz knows he's about to introduce some information. And we're about to get some stuff handled. And Boaz, he has a lot on the line for, for he has shown great love for Ruth. And he knows that if this guy comes, comes about and agrees to redeem her, then he will see Ruth marry this other person. He's okay with that because that's what the law dictates. But, but as we can see, he's also a pretty shrewd businessman. So, so we're going to see how he, how he handles this situation. And the, and the progress now depends on Boaz. And this redeemer, and so we have we have a little bit of a conversation to go through. It's a little bit technical because it's completely legal, right? It's like a court hearing, so just bear with me. But verse two, he says, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, "Sit down here." So they sat down, and then he said to the redeemer, "Where we're going? We're going to start our kind of legal proceedings here." Naomi has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it here in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he lays down, he lays down kind of the, the groundwork here. It's like, hey, um... Naomi has come back from Moab. She's selling the land. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where this is, this is one of the obligations that the nearest male relative would have. If, if someone falls into poverty and they have to sell their land in order to sustain life, then the nearest male relative, by law, would have to buy that land, and that is considered redeeming it so that it stays in the family. And I think this is revealing of a couple things. First, that Naomi and Ruth are not just out of the woods. They're still considered destitute. They're still considered very poor. I know there's been a lot of grace and favor uh, poured out on Ruth, and they've been able to sustain life, but the harvest is over. 
they still don't have a permanent way to continue to survive. And so Naomi's like, I'm going to have to sell this land. And in that time, it may have been a situation where women couldn't even own land. So she would have to sell it. She's, she, it, it. The law would not require her to be an owner of real estate. So they're, 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 they're still in a, in a situation that's a little bit uncertain. And so he brings it up to this redeemer. Um, we're going to call him friend because that's what scripture calls him. He brings it up to this redeemer and he says, uh, hey man, here's an opportunity for you to expand your estate. This is an opportunity for you to make more money because you'll have more land to grow more stuff and have a bigger harvest. Don't you want that? Buy it here in front of everyone. I got everybody conveniently all gathered up here. I have no, no other motives here whatsoever. It's just convenient that you came by and the ten elders are here. Buy this land. And if you don't, there's no one beside you. It falls to me and I'll do it. So, hey, do you, do you want more money? Right? This is going to be a sermon about tithing. No, 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 I'm joking. Um, you know, do you want more money? Do you want more land? Do you want more status? And the guy replies, um, and the guy replies, he said, I will redeem it. And that's another blow to us, right? He wasn't supposed to agree to redeem it. He was supposed to say, no, I got too much land already. I hate money. I hate making a bunch of crops. I don't like having a bunch of status. He was supposed to say that because we know if he agrees to redeem it, Ruth marries friend. And, and I can't combine that well with Ruth like Bruce. So I'm like, I don't know what their couple name would be. She marries friend and that's not, that's not right. That's not how the story is supposed to go. And Boaz says, okay, great. Now listen. There's something else you need to know about this transaction. And we start that in verse 5. It says, and then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So Boaz says, hey, it's, it's okay, so it's not so easy as just getting a bunch of land. Because the same law that requires you to buy that land, it also has some other requirements of you. You also require Ruth the Moabite, right? And we, we, see, we see that part of her past. It's, it's not been deleted from her, right? She is still Ruth the Moabite. She is still a foreigner, though she is, she is renowned in Bethlehem at this point. God has not deleted that from her. Instead, he wants to restore her. He wants to move her from a foreigner to a citizen. He wants to retell that story, and that's what we're seeing. And so he says, hey... Um, you know the same law that allows you to take this land and have more money and everything? Yet yeah, it, it also requires you to take Ruth. Are you willing, as much as you're willing to do something that helps you, are you willing to make a sacrifice and do something that maybe you're not even uh, required to do by letter of the law, but morally you need to take care of also uh, some, some baggage that comes with this? And what we see in, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25, verses 5 through 10, is kind of the laying out of the law uh, that, that uh, kind of outlines what is called leveret marriage, where, where the nearest male relative will take the wife of the deceased if no uh, son is produced so that that inheritance can continue on. And in verse 5 of chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, uh, reads, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her brother's husband, or her husband's brother rather, 
shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom, bear, whom she bears shall succeed in the name of the dead brother in his name, uh, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man shall, uh, does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My brother's husband refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him and in the presence of the elder shall pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, it was good stuff. And, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Don't, don't be losing sandals in ancient Israel, okay? You don't know what people are going to think, uh, right? And, and so this was, this, was, this was a law that was in place to keep land within the people of God, to keep the names of the families of the people of God continuing on for generations, regardless of whether or not a son was produced uh, to pass down. So this was a very serious thing, and it was, it was a very uh, kind of moral thing. Like, you, you did this as a sacrifice. So Boaz says, hey man, you want more land? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And he says, okay, there's, there's more to it. There's some sacrifice that you're going to have to make in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. Remember, right? Remember this. And here's where we find out why our old boy is just called friend. In uh, verse 6, he says, Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for myself, for I cannot redeem it. Old boy gets written out the story. He came in as friend and he left just as fast. And the reason why Boaz kind of exposed a little bit of his selfishness, right? And and an and old friend here, he's pretty honest. He said, hey, I, I can't take on that responsibility because then I'm going to have less. I don't want to have less. I want to have more. That's why I was willing to take the land, but I wasn't willing to make the sacrifice and take Ruth because Ruth also comes with Naomi. That's two more mouths to feed. That's, that's, the, uh, the, that's the producing of a son who then gets in a part of his inheritance. So all of his inheritance doesn't get to go to his sons, but it also goes to Elimelech's son. So he gets to hand down less to his sons. And he says, oh, I can't do that. I'm going to mess up my own plans. I got plans, man. And, and you're here trying to mess them up. And, and you got me in front of all the elders. I can't do that. So he says, he says, you redeem it. And us, we rejoice, right? Because we're like, oh, the gates are open. The flood is coming. He's going to go take his girl. They're going to meet on the escalator at the airport right before she boards the plane. The whole nine yards. We finally get our scene. But remember, according to law, the old dude loses a sandal, and he's known as a guy with no sandal. He gets written out of the story. One commentator says he dies an anonymous death. We have no idea who he is, because according to the story, it doesn't matter who he is. He fades into being anonymous. 
So in chapter in uh, verse 7, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Right? That's, that's exactly what we've seen. We didn't see anybody spit in anybody's face. Maybe Boaz is just real happy at this point. Like, hey, brother, I'm going to let you go with just one sandal. Uh, go work your fields. I'm not going to spit in your face or anything like that. But now, now our hearts are kind of enlightened, right? And, and the story that we've been wanting, it seems like we're going to get the last kind of uh, moment of tension is brought out of the way. And the story is going from from expectation to realization. This is actually going to happen. This is actually going to become real. We're not just talking about things that might happen. We're not just mowing over kind of bad plans that worked out well in our favor, but, but things are actually going to happen. And so what we're going to do is, is we have to attest to everyone here. We got 10 witnesses. Uh, we got like 10 notaries, right? And they're all going to put their stamp on it. They're all going to sign off. And he says, so he drew off his sandal and in verse 9, it says, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. Uh, Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And so Boaz, I can't help but think he's really happy at this point. He gets to lay out all that he is about to require, right? He gets to lay out all that, uh, that, that the Lord has, has blessed him with. He, don't, he doesn't necessarily see these as, as these big sacrifices for he loves Ruth. His favor is, ri- is with Ruth, and, and he loves Naomi. And some commentators, uh, they, they notice that he constantly refers to Naomi as daughter and praises her for not going after younger men, that he might might be the same age as Naomi. Him and him and Naomi may have grown up together. You know, we don't know, but he, but he, he loves Naomi. He loves Ruth, and he welcomes them into his house. And, and you notice Ruth is described as the Moabite and the widow of Malon. Again, her past isn't her past isn't deleted from her. Her past isn't minimized. Remember, she was in Moab. She was married. For 10 years, she bore no children. At this point, we can kind of assume that, that she's barren. She may not be able to even produce children. And so she's, she's the Moabite. She's the widow. We're not discounting these things from Ruth. But what we're doing is we, we want to, uh, or the Lord wants to retell this story. And this whole, this whole two, uh, two weeks or so that I've been studying this text, I've been a little bit frustrated with Blake. Because I'm like, how are you going to give me this legal transaction to preach? What you want me to do, man? What you want me to do? Like, ah, this is how things happened. I, 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 don't, I don't really know what to say. Jesus is good. What, what, what do you want me to do? So uh, I, I even consulted some of my favorite uh, preachers and friends. I'm like, well, how did you handle it? And they said, I skipped it. I just preached the second half of verse four, or, uh, chapter 4. And I'm like, I don't got that privilege, man. I got to say something. And I'm just letting you in kind of humorously into the struggle sometimes that that the Word of God is. And I'm always reminded of something that uh, a professor once told me. I went into his office and I said, man, uh, I keep reading this text and I have no idea what it says. It won't open up to me. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. What do you want me to do? I've read it 50 times. And my professor said to me, read it again. 
and in my mind, I'm like, thanks for nothing. You know, because honestly, I wanted him. Like, You're the one with the PhD, right? You're the one who studied all this. I want you to tell me what it means, but he wouldn't. He said, read it again. Read it 51 times. Read it 100 times. Read it 200 times. Read it with expectation that the Lord will open something up to you. So I left his office frustrated because that's not what I wanted. I wanted him to tell me what it was, but I've remembered that ever since. And so I kept reading this daggone legal transaction over and over again. And what became evident is not so much that this legal transaction is this, this, uh, this, this big, beautiful text that just opened up and I got all these illustrations just spewing out like, you know, like a magician or anything, but that this, this prayer at the end tells a long and storied past of God's provision, of God's rewriting people's stories, of God restoring people through changing their stories, through retelling their stories from, different, from a different perspective, from his perspective. And so the people at the gate, they rejoice, right? This is a good thing. Someone's line is, is going to be continued. The land is going to stay within Israel. And so they, they kind of erupt in this, in this praise and in this prayer. And it, it starts here in verse 11. It says, then all the people who are at the gate and the elders, this isn't just the 10 elders. This is anybody who stuck around to kind of hear what was going on. They all said, we are the witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so they, they, they erupt in this, in this praise and they name basically nothing but storied women who have been scattered throughout uh, the nation of Israel's past, right? And all these women find their way into the, line of, into the line of David, into the line of Jesus, but they are all very storied women. Rachel and Leah, right? They were both married to the, to the same guy because uh, he kind of got deceived, and, 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 and that's fine. We'll, we can get into that another time. But what was interesting about that is they both dealt intensely with not being able to produce children. They, they, they were jealous of one another for they were sisters. They were married to the same God. They were fertile at different times. They were barren at different times. And, and out of jealousy, uh, there, was, there was a lot of things that happened throughout that story uh, th that, were, that were not good. But here... All, all of those things that happened between Leah and Rachel and that deception, all it says was that together they built the house of Israel. That's their story. That's their story. They, they, they struggled with infertility and, and all these other things, right? But their story was rewritten by Yahweh as women who were used mightily by God to build up the house of Israel. Together, they each produced six sons, which became the six tribes of Israel. Literally, they built the nation of Israel, and Yahweh did that through them, right? And it says... May your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I don't know if you know anything about Tamar, but her story is, let's just say, interesting. Where, where she, she married a man, didn't produce any children, he dies. 
His brother was supposed to come and perform his leveret duties. Instead, he takes advantage of her. He abuses her. He exploits her. And for that, the Lord marks him. That happens sometimes. It happens in the New Testament too, right? So he dies as well. And she's like, okay, I, I've been used. I've been abused. Judah then uh, withholds another husband from her. So she's like, that's cool. She dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. And she's in the line that leads to Jesus. We would think, that's jacked up. That's something that, that I wouldn't be bringing up. I wouldn't be telling people about that. And we would think that's the story of Tamar, the lady who dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law. But here, here, she's in the line that builds up the nation of Israel. And, and, and when I read this list of women, I thought there's one missing. And she's just in the background. We talk about Rahab the prostitute, right? She's literally called Rahab the prostitute for all of Scripture. And we're like, well, where is she at? Because she plays a pretty key role too. And does anyone happen to know who Boaz's mom is? It's Rahab. That's Boaz's mom. It's Rahab the prostitute who took in the spies, sent them out another way, right? And, and James brings her up and praises her for her faith. She's in what they call the hall of faith. We got a little hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Uh, and she's in the hall of faith, again, uh, for her faith, uh, of putting her life on the line to protect those that were sent from God. And she is all along called Rahab the prostitute. Her past is not separated from her like it needs to be forgotten. God has retold her story. He has redeemed her. He has restored her. And she's right in there. Straight to King David. Straight to Jesus. Right in the mix of it. Pro destitute profession and all. Now Ruth is in there. Foreigner. Separate from the people of God. No promises in the Old Testament apply to her at all. She becomes a citizen. Right? She becomes in the line that leads us to the Redeemer, not a Redeemer, leads us to Christ. We got Naomi. Her story has been rewritten before our very eyes, right? She's bitter. She's the one saying, uh, the, the, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Yahweh cares nothing for me. I have no hope. I count myself among the dead. And here, and, and in chapter 3, she starts making plans because her hope has been reborn. And, and guess what? Something who is absolutely bankrupt of hope. Guess what they don't do? They don't make plans. And some of us, we identify with that storyline. We identify with the storyline of Naomi much more than Ruth, where we say, Joey, I'm not this bold, courageous person who has this faith and dedication. I'm much more like Naomi. I much more find it very easy to be bitter and very easy to be downtrodden. And I can look at my past and say, and say I'm, I'm the victim of a bunch of really bad things. And, and, and a lot of people have, have done bad things to me. And yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but, but mainly Joey, I, I'm not this, this person. I identify with Naomi. Darkness is a friend to me. I've been wronged. And that may very well be the case, right? But the, what the book of Ruth would, would really coach us on, remember, is that in your darkest of days, the Lord is at 
work. The Lord is retelling your story. And the Lord does not minimize your pain. The Lord does not minimize what you have gone through. He doesn't come with the, with the promise of salvation to say, hey, everything that you've gone through, I care nothing about that. I only care about the future. You are a new creation. Why are you still worried about this stuff? He comes alongside of you and says, I know what you've been through. I, too, have suffered and been wronged. I know what that feels like, but I can retell your story. I can restore you. Your stories of abuse and exploit, exploitation rather. Your stories of being abandoned and neglected. I can retell those stories as momentary afflictions. As stories of, of growth and of hope and of grace. And maybe some of us we think that we live a life of, of, of a pretty much no suffering. We, we, we identify maybe more as Boaz. You know, maybe that's you. Where, uh, I've, I've heard this before, you're kind of envious of people with really big testimonies. Like, oh man, I did every drug in the world and I became a Christian and never desired it again. And you're like, oh, that's a big testimony. I, I grew up in a Christian household. My parents loved me. And, uh, you know, been in church my whole life. You know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe you're more like a Boaz where you're not, you're not so uh, acquainted with grief. I would say the Lord, the Lord still restores you as well. Because that road, maybe, maybe it doesn't lead to such a, a quote-unquote dark place as, as other testimonies can, but it can certainly lead to places of self-sufficiency, of self-righteousness, where you think that because you haven't experienced these other things, maybe, maybe you're a little bit better than everybody. Maybe you're a little bit better off. Maybe, uh, you know, all the grace that you have received, maybe that's of your doing. Maybe it's not from the hand of God. Or maybe you are suppressing suffering that you have gone through. Maybe you look at other people suffering who grew up poor and exploited and abused and you say, well, I've suffered a little bit too, but not nearly as much as that person, so I have no right to say anything. It's kind of like, you know, you have no right to complain about this. Don't you know there's starving kids in Africa? It's like, well, yeah, that's great, but just because someone's, you know, circumstance is worse than mine doesn't mean it's not heavy to me. I say the Lord cares about that. The Lord desires to, to restore you as well. And me personally, I, I, I have experienced a lot in my life. I've experienced a lot of abuse. I've experienced a lot of, uh, of ne neglect and, and addiction. I've handed those things out too. I've been abused. I've abused others. And so when this guy gets in a pulpit and preaches this text and says, God restores you, Joey, by restoring you, my heart felt light. You mean you know all these things about me? You know all the bad things that I've done? And you love me despite that? That's a better story than someone saying, I love you and I, I, I care nothing about what you did in your past. There's someone to say, I know what you did and I love you anyway. I'm here anyway. That's the, that's, the, that's the weightlessness of being known. That's the weightlessness of being in community, right? And confessing your sin and having your brother say, man, that's dark and that sucks, but I'm still here anyway. 
And that's what we have in Christ. That's our Redeemer. We're, we're, we're not working in fields and, and, and different things like that. We're not in this time frame. But we have a Redeemer in Christ. And Christ says, I know you fully. And I want you anyway. That's a better story. That's a better story than Ruth and Boaz. That's a better story than even Bruce. That's a better story than Naomi. That's the story of God. And that's the story God is telling So what story are you telling? Are you telling that same story? Are you telling a different story? What story is your life telling? That of someone who is redeemed and known and loved? Are you telling, are you telling a story that, that Jesus isn't big enough to do that? That you're a product of everything that, that, is, that has happened to you? You're just a mere product of that. You're just, you're just a victim. That's it. That's your story. That's where it ends. There's no great redeemer that comes and gets that victory for you. I'll leave you with this. You're not merely a product of every bad thing that has ever happened to you. You're a child of the Most High. You're a daughter of the Lord, a son of the Lord, and an, uh, one who is set to inherit the kingdom, your story is in the cross. It doesn't minimize your pain. Deal with it. Grieve deeply. Seek justice. But who you are, a restored, restored child of God, is wrapped up in Christ's death on the cross.